0: Hello, I'm Alma Heckman, and welcome to another edition of Tejin, a podcast devoted to the study of North Africa. I am joined today by Professor Sarah Abravaya Stein, who is the Maurice Amato Endowed Chair in Sephardic Studies at UCLA. Today we will be discussing her recently published book, Saharan Jews and the Fate of French Algeria. In addition to this recently published book, she has also recently co edited a volume entitled Sephardi Lives, a Documentary History 1700 through 1950 with Julia Phillips Cohen, as well as a Jewish voice from Ottoman Salonika, the Ladino memoir of Saadi Basal alevi in 2012 with Erin Rodrigue, and her 2008 very well-decorated book, Plumes, Ostrich Feathers, Jews in a Lost World of Global Commerce, as well as Making Jews Modern, the Yiddish and Ladino Press in the Russian and Ottoman Empires. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you. So, in order to begin this book, I wonder if you could just sort of go over the main themes from the book. What are the main themes? What are the main contours? I know you introduced it, your technique in writing it, as kind of a wrinkle in time to channel mm-hmm. Madeline Lengel. What were you thinking with this and conceptualizing the project as a whole?
1: Well, let me perhaps return to Madeleine L'Engle's provocative <laughs> phrasing at the end of my answer and, and begin with a little bit about the broad contours of the project. Um, The history of Jews in Algeria has tended to be written through the lens of the demographic majority of Algerian Jewry, which was clustered on um, the coast to the north and in the major cities. And one of the things that held together the history of those communities uh, is the fact that all fell under the 1870 Cremieux Decree, which granted Um, which allowed the French state to grant naturalization to the Jews in Algeria, uh, which created a legal contrast between Algeria's Muslim populations who were not considered citizens. So as I say, the scholarship on Algerian Jewry has focused on this story of northern Algerian Jewry, Much of it has pivoted around this question of what citizenship meant for Jews, for the relationship between Jews and France, for the relationship between Jews and the European settler colonialists in Algeria, and for Jews and their Muslim neighbors. But there is another history that hasn't been told or that has traditionally been referenced only in footnotes. And that is the history of the far smaller Jewish communities who lived south of the three departments, the administrative departments that France created in Algeria, in a region called the Southern Territories, which we also can think of as the Sahara. So this community in the South, conquered later than the Northern Algerian community, um, was not grandfathered into the Cremieux Decree, and we can perhaps talk a little bit later about why that was so. And I was drawn to this story, a story, as I said, that was a footnote, and perhaps was a footnote not only because of the demographically smaller size of this community, but because this was considered from the perspective of the historiography, a kind of aberration. And I was drawn to this idea of Jewish difference, the difference of Jews in the North and of the South, and the differences that were adjudicated by French colonial policy and law and that led me to this region of southern Algeria. Um, now in terms of the phrase a wrinkle in time, um, I use that as a kind of entry point to this longer history. Madeline Langle talks about bending time and thinking about how one can see the past and the present meet if the texture, the fabric of time is, is bent. And I attempt narratively to do the same thing by beginning the book and ending the book with the same episode. An episode that has cast a long shadow over the way in which not only Southern Algerian history, but Northern Algerian history, Jewish history, that is, has been evaluated. So we can talk about that moment, but my interest is in creating a kind of cycle in the history of Algerian Jewry that opens up its longer history through an evocative moment. And that Mm -hmm. evocative moment, I'm sure we will get there in our conversation, has to do with the departure of the majority of this community in the last phase of the Algerian War of Independence.
0: Right, so speaking about the departure of Jews from Algeria, I mean, so much literature about Jews of North Africa and the Middle East is centered around this story of Jews leaving and Jews either going to France or to Israel, in some cases elsewhere, but usually it's either France or Israel. Um, but your story is much more focused about what happens within the Mzab and the southern territories. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering why it is you begin with, and end with that mm-hmm. moment and how that integrates into wider questions of Jewish studies as a field. That's an interesting question. You know, the, the Jews from
1: this region of the south that I'm investigating, which um, the the Saharan Algerian Jewish population is clustered in a valley known as the Mzab, which is uh, located some 600 kilometers south of Algiers in the northern boundary of the Algerian Sahara, the northern portion of the Algerian Sahara. This population has been called and remembered in different ways, called different things and remembered in different ways. And I talk about a kind of thicket of interpretation that surrounds their history, but even more specifically, this moment of departure. Not all the Jews left at this moment in the summer of 1960. too, but this was the really the, the emigration of the majority of the community happened at this time, though there had been a, a trickle of emigration previously. As I say, they, they were called many things. To the French, they were called repatriates. To some Algerian nationalists, they might have been called um, you know betrayers. To mizabi neighbors, they might have been considered, Um, to be abandoning the the future path of the region or of an independent Algeria. To Israeli observers, they were considered to be um, betrayers as well, but insofar as they didn't choose to emigrate to Israel at that moment, but to go to France as well. Um, To certain American observers, including an ethnographer who I spend a good amount of time in the book thinking about, whose name was Lloyd Cavett Briggs, In his depiction, they were a kind of voiceless brutes who were um, simply buffeted along by the tides of history. To the Jews themselves, they describe themselves variously and often in their own forms of narrative and memory, put themselves at the center of the action much more than these other observers. Now, all of this is to say that that moment of departure becomes a kind of flashpoint that any time this community is spoken about, it seems always to percolate through that moment of departure and what it signals for the larger history. So I'm interested in playing with that obsession with departure. And rather than labeling these Jews refugees, rather than labeling them repatriates or betrayers of a cause, um, or the repatriated subjects, or pied noir, or many other names we could give them, rather than giving them any single name, I'm invested in thinking about the complex ways in which they were perceived. And I think that even before we can tell this whole history, or read this whole history, we have to think about how this history has been obscured by all these competing Narratives. And many of these um, labels that I speak of and the longer histories that are assigned to them um, are judgmental labels. And so, beginning and ending with this point of departure and talking about conflicting interpretations and experiences and forms of rewriting of the Algerian Jewish past allows me, I think, to peel away some of the layers of obfuscation that have concealed this history without trying to present a new analytic label, Mm -hmm. but rather to seek a a more complicated story uh, beneath them.
0: Yeah, well, thinking about more complicated stories, you mentioned the Crémieux Decree earlier, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the differences legally, culturally, socially, linguistically even, between the northern Algerian Jewish population Mm -hmm aka the French Jewish population for its complex right. reasons. Right. Versus the Jews of the Mzab. So I guess my first the first part of this is the Crimea Decree, how that affects mm-hmm. Jews in northern Algeria and right. what this means for the South. Right.
1: Well even before the Crimea Decree is passed, even before French conquest of either northern Algeria or all of what becomes Algeria, colonial Algeria. Before all of that occurs, there is a pre existing Algerian Jewish community in the Mzab, in the Sahara, and it had its roots, um, its roots reach back to the medieval period. It is harder to write the pre colonial history of this community because of a paucity of sources, Um, and I, in any case, am not the person to write that history, And, and my story really is a story of colonialism and so is more closely tied to the onset of colonial rule. But what one can say is that the Jewish communities of the Sahara um, were concentrated in the northern part of the Sahara. They were Arabophone and likely Birbophone, um Jews. They were connected through networks of trade and Jewish culture, especially rabbinical literature, to mm-hmm. other Saharan Communities um, elsewhere in the Algerian Sahara, in Libya, in southeastern Morocco, and so forth. So all of this is to say that they were not really, in some profound, by some profound measure, Algerian
0: mm-hmm.
1: before the conquest of Algeria takes place. Right. They were like so many other peoples in this region. They were both local and part of trans-regional cultures of trade, of of, um, religious practice, of family ties, and so forth and so on. Now, colonialism, the imposition of colonial rule, and especially the imposition of colonial legal categories, disrupts this pattern. The first profound disruption, I think, from the perspective of Algerian Jewish history is the passage, as I said before, of the Crimea Decree, which grants French naturalization, French citizenship to the Jews of the three administrative departments of Northern Algeria. This creates, as I mentioned earlier, a bifurcation between Muslims who live in this colonial setting and Jews um, and settler colonialists who are also granted citizenship um, in a mass um, naturalization act. But the Cremieux Decree passed in 1870 will, as I said, not be extended to the south of Algeria once that region is conquered. Interestingly enough, largely because French administrators, which means both colonial officials, military representatives, and bureaucrats sort of all along the chain of command, come to view the Cremieux Decree as having been a terrible mistake. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to me that this often gets left out of the literature on Algerian Jewry, which tends to valorize the relationship between Algerian Jews and the French state, uh, and tends to present it as a given that these Mm. Jews would be viewed as, legally treated as um, Europeans and French citizens. But... um, As Joshua Schreier's work on this topic suggests, in fact, the decision to pass the Crimea decree was not an easy one. It came only after a a labyrinthian road of experimentation um, in which Jews are um, treated in different ways, experimented on, in in a sense, uh, with different colonial categories. Um, But even after the passage of this law, Jews do not prove easy to quote-unquote civilize in the way that the French authorities assumed that they would by assuming that they were in some ways ready-made French men and women. And as I said before, what Joshua Schreier's work investigates is the very messy process that results, that includes a lot of pushback from northern Algerian Jews, and also from settler colonialists Mm. who are antagonistic to this notion of the naturalization of Jews, and some pushback, which has probably been exaggerated by Muslims living in the region. So for, for a variety of reasons, this Cremieux decree is considered to be not very successful and to have caused more problems than it resolves. And when um, the conquest of the Sahara is um, completed, and the region of the Mazab particularly in the 1880s, the decision is made not to grandfather in the Jews of this region under the Crimea decree, but rather to follow a model which gets applied in Tunisia, which is to say that Jews in this region will be treated juridically speaking, as if, or rather, like their Muslim as um, neighbors, that's right, as, Andigen, as indigenous subjects, not as citizens. And in fact, the Jews of northern Algeria are also treated as, Andigen, as indigenous subjects between the conquest of Algeria in 1830 and the passage of the Kremu Decree in 1870. So mm-hmm. for that 40 years, the same thing unfolds in the north. But what happens in the south is that it lasts from the conquest of the southern territories all the way until, as far as Jews are concerned, all the Mm -hmm. way until the Algerian War. So for that entire duration of some 80 years, Jews in the South are put into a legal niche that differentiates them from Jews elsewhere in Algeria. And for a time, at least, renders them juridically and in terms of policy akin to Muslims. Hmm.
0: So what were the reasons behind denying, I guess we can use that word, or choosing not to apply the Crimea decree in the South. You mentioned that it was considered not a good idea. Um, And I wonder why that was. Is this in part due to the Dreyfus case? I mean, is this in part due to um, various political pushback among the settlers or northern Algerian political events?
1: Well, that's a combination of elements. Um there is not a large European settler colonial class in the South. So there, there is not the kind of neighboring settler colonial population mm. such as one sees in the North. Um, of course, there were settler colonialists looking on from the North. But you are right that the Dreyfus Affair possibly plays some role, although it unfolds a bit later than the conquest. And so there might have been time. Mm -hmm. Um, And for those who don't know, the Dreyfus Affair refers to um, a trumped-up accusation made against a French military officer um, that he was passing secrets of the French military to the Germans, um, which resulted in a trial, at first an arrest, much later and very after much public um, response, uh, his imprisonment and eventual release, but in the course of which, in the course of which there was a tremendous rise in anti-Jewish sentiment in continental France, but, and this is what is often forgotten, also in Algeria. So in the book, I do talk to some extent about how military and state colonial representatives in the South may have imbibed some of this anti-Semitic fervor during the era of the, of the Dreyfus affair. But I don't think that anti-Semitism was the engine of the decision not to extend citizenship to, to southern Algerian Jews. And I think what we have to be careful of is to assume that the granting of citizenship to Jews in Algeria was the obvious course, mm-hmm. and that the path. Um, that an alternative path was the mistaken course. But I think in fact, there is a more precise way of talking about this. And that precise way of speaking is to say that French colonial officials across uh, the, across French colonies and protectorates experimented with the application of categories legal categories and racial categories and other forms of categories, including sort of quasi sectarian ones, that they used to understand and ultimately to control their subject populations. Um, And there are many wonderful scholars who have written about the complexities of this from context to context. In this context, I think that the choice to legally differentiate Jews in the South from Jews in the North reflected this creative but ultimately sort of politically abusive desire to divide and control subject populations. And not only did they not have any interest in repeating what they perceived to be the mistake of the Kremio Decree, Mm. but they also perceived that in this region isolated from the demographic majority of Algerians and settler colonials and Jews in the north, um, in a region that was not yet of strategic priority to the state, um, in a region where Jews do not have much political sway nor, crucially, economic leverage as Mediterranean trading partners. For these reasons and others, they felt there was simply no strategic advantage and far better um, to avoid problems that will not bring any gain for the state.
0: Hmm. Well, this leads me to another question um, concerning a sentence that I really enjoyed um, in your book. This was on page 18, which I you know is very specific, but um, the idea of creating boundaries at the same time as fashioning indigeneity. You write, indigenous Jews are made, not found. And this is shortly after you emphasize the regional focus of your approach and the need to reintroduce regionality into a study of North African Jewish history as well as perhaps wider contours of Middle Eastern North African history. Um, so I wonder if you can comment on this idea of made, not found, mm-hmm. and what that has to do both with the state, right, in the sense of the French state and its colonial apparatus, as well as people that you mentioned earlier such as the anthropologists um, Briggs and his partner. Mm-hmm. Well I think that the way
1: in which The field of Jewish history has tended to be organized, which is not so dissimilar from larger fields of history as they are um, canonized in the American academy at least, and by which graduate students are trained, jobs are created, etc. and so forth, has tended to be around national boundaries. Perhaps North Africa is an exception, that one can study North African or, or indeed, Middle Eastern Jewries. Certainly for the field of European Jewish history, this model of nationalization in the way in which we think about Jews, research them, study them, teach them, and so forth, has, has for many, many years been paradigmatic. And so much of the literature on Algerian Jewry, or if one thinks of literature on Moroccan jewelry, or on Tunisian Jewry, and so forth and so on, has respected the boundaries of polities there is some inventive scholarship that moves across these boundaries to be sure within the field of Jewish studies. I'm thinking, for example, of Jessica Marglin's work about Jews who cross the borders between Morocco and Algeria, or in larger fields, such as Julia Clancy Smith's wonderful work on the notion of Mediterranean as um, regionalists in a sense, and a a region represented by many um, moving parts and peoples. So, there is a sort of increasing enthusiasm for breaking away from these national models. And I think one of the things we can do as we break away from the nationaliz- nationalization, as it were, or the um, reverence for colonial categories is to appreciate the importance of regional history. This breaking away from national, quarter- um, national categories is also really quite important for embracing global history, transnational history and comparative history, but he, and these are some methodologies I've pursued in, in other pieces of my scholarship. But in this project, I was really rather more interested in thinking about regionalism, and this will bring me to the point about indigeneity. But what I was so struck by is that over 80 years of French rule in the Algerian Sahara French colonial administrators, military representatives, and many many observers in France, in Algeria, in the Jewish world, etc., try to reify categories and give them legal weight and political weight. Categories such as Algerian, Saharan, southern, northern, indigenous, foreign, even Moroccan and of course Jew. Mm-hmm. And yet when we look closely at what it All of the complex dynamics that surrounded this category of Southern Algerian Jew, we find that these administrators, these military representatives themselves, were always stumbling over their inability to identify with precision the difference between a Southern Jew and a Northern Jew. What do you do if a Southern Jew marries a Northern Jew? And what about those children? Are they going to be Mm -hmm. Saharan or are they going to be Northern? Are they going to be French citizens or are they going to be Andijan? What do you do about people who move across the boundary? What do you do about towns that actually straddle the boundary or regions such as um, the Western Sahara that, uh, that move back and forth? These are immensely complicated and thorny questions. And Jews are one people, but not the only people who not only allied, but give give lie to the validity of the kinds of, of political, geographic, conceptual categories that colonialism imposes on North Africa. So I think that thinking about regionalism helps us not take these categories at their word. Um, It helps us think about the importance of Jewish difference on the one hand, the difference of experiences of colonialism in the North and in the South, for example. The difference also of the experience, of course, of Muslims and Jews, but now to speak about regionalism, I'm speaking about North and South. And in so doing to think critically about the sources we rely on, which tend to present these categories as absolutes. Even mm-hmm. if one reads closely, one sees that they're not at all. And I think that there are regional histories to be told of many other places in North Africa and the Middle East, as well as in Europe, um, that haven't been told, that have been denied us in a sense because we are almost blinded with our adoration for national or imperial boundaries. So one thinks about the East West divide within northern Algeria and one could, one could say much much more about intra or trans regional difference. So when I say that Algerian when I say that indigenous Jews are made and not found. What I'm what I'm pointing to is the fact that colonialism, French colonial law is responsible for labeling some Jews indigenous and other Jews French citizens. And that colonial law, as I describe in the book, is in this peculiar dialogic relationship with the field of social science. And with, especially with anthropologists Mm -hmm. who are involved in trying to help the state. And some of these anthropologists are also military men or representatives of the, of public health regimes and so forth and so on. Um, They are trying to help the state validate their categories. And in turn, they reiterate these categories, these social scientists, in their own writings. So there is this complex complex perpetuation of colonial fantasies that the South is home to indigenous Jews, Mm -hmm. whereas the North is home to French citizens who happen to be Jews. But none of this was preordained. This is all a reflection of this um, tentative, unpredictable, And ultimately, responsive path of colonial legislation and policy. Um, And to write this history, we have to look beyond the categories that we have inherited from the archive, from colonialism itself.
0: Hmm. And I wonder, you mentioned that some of these anthropologists are in the service to the state. And, I mean, it's a really exciting story um, about Briggs mm-hmm. and his background. Um, so I think, um, a lot of people will be very interested in this. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about him and his colorful past. And... Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Well, Lloyd Cabot Briggs together with uh, a research assistant, who's a nurse of Italian background named Norina Lamey spends uh, roughly 20 years of his life in Algeria, conducting research and favoring as his subject matter, as he calls it, the Races of the Sahara. And his first, uh, one, his, one of his first major works of writing is in 1958, the book, The Living Races of the Sahara. And then some years later, he writes a book called um, No More Forever, a Saharan Jewish Town, which is about the town of Gardaya in the Mazab Valley. Lloyd Cabot Briggs, through these 20 years of life and scholarship, social scientific research in Algeria, is there at various points in his life. He is at times a graduate student. He is at times uh, an independent researcher. He is a collector, especially of Tuareg art. During the second world war, he is also a representative of the um, OSS. That is the operation of strategic, excuse me, the office of strategic services, which is, um, the precursor to the Central Intelligence Agency. And the Oso Social. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nicknamed the OSS the Oso Social because it tended to be, um, I- its positions tended to hail from socially prominent men and women in, um, in the United States. And um, Briggs also came from this Boston Brahmin family of some significance. Um, so he reaches Algeria, after applying to work for the FBI in 1942. And as I describe in the book, a a rather fantastic tale emerges during the war years of his work and and work for the OSS and potentially his rogue work uh, representing um, the United States, even when he may not have had the official charge to do so. But after the war, he receives training at Harvard University returns to Algeria to conduct um, field work. And this I find extremely interesting. This is at a moment at which the field of anthropology is in a moment of methodological debate and crisis, which extends through the 1960s um, about not only the methods, but the goals of um, anthropological study. And um, as some listeners will know, in a deeper way than I, part of this um, this debate is about the choice to conduct physical anthropological uh, research or to emphasize uh, the cultural angle in the spirit of um, a new school of anthropology that is emerging at Columbia University and in a sense supplanting or um, temporarily overshadowing, we shall say, that which was based at Briggs' home institution, Harvard University. This is a long preamble (laughs) to the central point I want to make, which is that Briggs, in the course of the Algerian War, begins conducting fieldwork in the Mzab Valley, in the town of Gardaya, with his assistant who becomes his co-author, Gwede. And they write a book that um, has, until now, I really... Am amazed to find is really that de- has emerged as the definitive source on Southern Algerian jewelry, cited by fine scholars when they wish to reference, mm-hmm. usually in footnote form, the history of this sure. community. But what I wanted to do was scrutinize the um, sort of technologies of production of this study, and I find that um, that this book no more forever has a rather disturbing. Um, a political analysis at its core that Briggs is working closely with the French military at this time. His field work is often supervised by the leading um, state representatives in this area of the Mazab Valley who are armed as he conducts his field work. That um, people's skulls are being measured, their body parts um, assessed for their their racial essence. And what he is captivated by. Is the question of how, in the Mazab Valley, in the Algerian Sahara, a people can exist who, in his view, have been perfectly preserved, right. um, as, as an isolated human type. So he's interested in thinking about this region, a, histor- a and indeed extra historically. And I begin with this chapter because, again, it is an opportunity for me to say, let us think carefully about the conditions of possibility which have produced histories of this community up until now. And think carefully about the um, blind spots Mm -hmm. in that knowledge and the holes and especially the preconceptions. And for Briggs, the preconception is that the Jews of southern Algeria not only are indigenous, but are um, are isolated, are cut off from global events, are, um, are profoundly different from Jews elsewhere and from their um, non-Jewish neighbors, and especially, fascinatingly enough, are entirely apolitical um, and unaware of as... Indeed, he presents himself as being, um, to some extent, of the political drama swirling around him.
0: So when the Jews of the Mizab are granted French citizenship in June 1961, what is that context? I mean, obviously, this is when the War of Algerian Independence is raging toward a conclusion. Yes, exactly. And... I wonder what is behind this decision to grant the Mazabi Jews this citizenship after all of this?
1: Yeah, it's a a really complicated question. And just to lay out the contours, um, it it is in June of 1961 that France, um, the National Assembly of France, votes to grant southern Algerian Jews. French citizenship with common civil status. That is, that they will be treated like French citizens as in the same fashion, not only as Jews in northern Algeria, but as French citizens in um, within the borders of continental France. Why on earth does this happen? This last gasp of colonial authority, as you say, the very denouement of the Algerian War of Independence, which lasts um, from... Um, Sorry, which had begun in 1954 and would end in 1962 with a declaration of Algerian sovereignty. Why on earth would it be a priority of the regime to create a new legal policy towards Jews of the South? And what I argue in this book, an attempt to reconstruct through careful archival work and historical contextualization, is that at the moment at which at which this law is passed, it allows the Jews of, Algerian, of Algeria's south to join the flow of, again, the, the names are so complicated, the flow of peoples fleeing Algeria just before its declaration of sovereignty. Roughly 140,000 Jews from Algeria's north who leave as fresh French citizens, a million Algerians of European descent, that is descended from settler colonialists, called pied noir, leaving at the same time roughly 100,000 Harkis or Muslims who sided with France in the course of the Algerian War. The Jews of southern Algeria are only able to join this flow, this migratory flow, if they are given the legal right to do so. And the legal right to do so hinges upon the reversal of their existing legal status and the assignation to them of the status of French citizens. Now you can still ask the question, why? Who cares? Why 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 not let them stay? Why is that a priority? And different voices have claimed different things. Um, Some might point to a rise in uh, tension between Jews and Muslims in the Mazab. I think that in fact, the real drama here concerns something else. It concerns categories of the era of decolonization, the very um, political norms that are taking shape as a result of the Algerian war and a result of the kind of anticipation of Algeria becoming independent. And I'm I'm borrowing here, in a sense, from Todd Shepard's work on the decolonization of Algeria and his notion that France invents a new history of Algeria precisely at the time that it um, formally begins, as the era of decolonization begins, and as, as its uh, power structures are removed from Algeria, though I would note that, in fact, France continues to exert a um, a kind of quasi-imperial uh, power in the South until the 1970s through the control of the oil industry. Right. But anyway, that was a small digression. So I think, in other, in other words, part of the problem from the French status perspective is that the Jews of southern Algeria don't align with the kinds of categories that are coming to be formed at this moment of decolonization, the categories that delineate Europeans and so-called Muslims, the categories that are used to flaunt the fact that France has theoretically treated its French, its Jews in Algeria so well, those so, those citizens. So the Jews of, of Algeria's South give lie to these narratives Mm. to to these um, divisions of peoples. You know, on the one hand, one can argue it allows Jews to leave. On the other hand, one can say it also allows certain mythologies of the French state to be perpetuated and even to celebrate as a victory Mm -hmm. the so-called rescue of a vulnerable population. And this population had indeed come to be uh, mythologized, um, even heroized, as a um, a lost, forgotten Jewish population that, that needed rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, so the passage of this law serves multiple functions for, for different parties and uh, the law that grants them citizenship. I mean, it's also interesting that the state of Israel is also trying to recruit these Jews to its shores right. um, and are quite... Um, anxious in a sense that they are not able to succeed with the entire, bringing the entire population to, um, to Israel.
0: Right. I mean, something that I found very interesting in this book was how different moments such as the discovery of oil in the Mazab, the struggle for independence and moving backwards in order, I guess, Mm -hmm. and also the Vichy period, right? Mm How, um, we've heard on Tajin, a podcast about, um, Vichy Morocco in specific, but, what I really enjoyed was how the Vichy period in which the Jews of northern Algeria, having been subject to the Crimea Decree and having been made citizens, were disenfranchised by the fact of that original inclusion. And in a way, the Jews of the Mazab suffered very little in that sense. I mean, they, did not, they couldn't have suffered losing their jobs. They couldn't have suffered any of the sort of negative effects of the Vichy laws in the sense that they were not citizens to begin with. And that again highlights this idea of regionality, right, and this easy stumbling block we see in so much history to just treat national histories, right, without examining, well, if we talk about Algerian Jews in the Second World War, we need to keep in mind this other population. Um, But this leads into another question I have, which is about Zionism and Israel and its attempts to recruit, in a sense, Jews from the Mazab for its purposes, and also international Jewish philanthropies. Um, you have a quote that I really enjoy. Um, this is on page 111. In 1953, the American Jewish Yearbook declared the legal status of Mazabi Jewry the, quote, only unsolved political problem concerning Jews in North Africa, which is a pretty it's audacious <laughs> yeah, pretty audacious statement. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you can comment a little bit about this. The, sure. Yeah.
1: I think to understand the statement, you're right. We have to look back to the Vichy period, because as you say, for certainly for northern Algerian Jewry, but for, for so many North African Jews, the Vichy period is um, a period of great trauma and of great disillusionment with the promises that colonialism appeared to offer to some factions of that community. Not to all. We have, of course, Jews of different political stripes in in the region who might accept or or reject the the premises and the promises of um, the French civilizing mission and of the nation state. Um, But even aside from this political variety, the um, denaturalization, the stripping of citizenship, of Jews in North Africa, uh, in Algeria, and um, the pushing of many Jews into forced labor, the, their, the seizing of their assets, um, the de-Judaization as it were of the economy and, and, and other things are all markers of the trauma that the Vichy period wrought on so many Jews in North Africa, Um, political persecution, one could go on. Now, the Sahara is certainly not untouched by the Vichy era. And I talk about some of the ways in which this this period is experienced by Jews and non-Jews in the South and some of the ways in which Jews specifically um, experience the pressures of the Vichy regime. But as you say, the majority experience isn't one of the, of the same trauma that one sees in the North. There isn't, by and large, there isn't a professional class, even though there are some um, wealthy families uh, who are um, distinguishing themselves as leading merchants, and indeed some Jewish professionals in the South. But there are not as many who will experience deprofessionalization with the seizing of jobs and assets and the pushing out of certain industries according to quotas put in place by the Vichy regime. They do not have citizenship, so it cannot be taken away. Um, the political range of the Jews in this region not being quite as broad, and we can get to this perhaps later, as, as in the north, means that fewer will be persecuted on political grounds, um, and other factors that I explore. So the point, the, the, the crucial point here is that um, Southern Algerian Jewish history requires its own timeline and its own narrative. And as you say, the national narrative that has been assigned Algerian Jews in terms of how they experience Vichy d- simply does not apply to the South. And what is interesting is that after the war, there is a year that is a celebratory year for Jews in the north of Algeria, which is 47 after the war. And in 47, after a rather embarrassing delay, there is the re extension of citizenship with common civil status to Jews in northern Algeria. I'm not, I don't mean to imply that the trauma disappears, but that piece of it, the legal disenfranchisement, is reversed. Jews in southern Algeria hope that they will be included in that re-extension of citizenship, and they are not. And instead, their status as a somewhat anomalous legal niche is re-articulated and embraced. And they are not only denied common civil status in France, but they're placed in what's called Algeria's second electoral college which is to say that there is a degree of local representation without the full rights um, or responsibilities of citizenship after this moment of 1947 the Jews of the Algerian Sahara become a cause celeb and it is in this context that the quote that you mention of this being the last unsolved problem in North Africa comes to the fore and suddenly in 47 and into the 1950s the um, there isn't a single global Jewish philanthropy that isn't interested in the fate of Southern Algerian Jews. And suddenly all sorts of aspects of their story come to be fascinating and also crucially repulsive, especially the fact that they exist under, um, under so-called mosaic law, not being citizens, they are subject to, um, civil status laws that mean that certain religious determinations have um, uh, a crucial impact on their lives. So the religious authorities have the the obligation to oversee questions of marriage, divorce, succession, and so on. And for many observers, global Jewish philanthropies, also certain human rights organizations, this is seen as... Um, a grotesque crime of colonialism. And there's, there are these very weird stories that result in this time. There's an, especially an obsession with the fact of the perpetuation of polygamy among the Southern Algerian community, because uh, polygamy is banned by European Jewish law in the medieval period, but technically is allowed to persist under Jewish law, autochthonous to the Middle East, much longer. In most, in many, many instances, it's adjudicated away by the state once Jews become citizens, but not here, where Jews aren't citizens. So there's this, there's this kind of um, fetishistic, frenetic attention to sexuality and to this idea of polygamy, and there is the citing and reciting of stories of divorces, of marriages, um, um, of the statistic that. of marriages in the region lasted less than two years. There's even one story that I kept reading over and over in all of these different accounts about um, a woman who was divorced and remarried no less than 18 times. Um, So this quotation that you read is one of the voices of shock about the fact that this community has been treated in this strange fashion. Of course, it's only strange if we take as normative the citizenship model. Right. It's not strange relative to many Jews around the Middle East. Um, but that is the narrative that develops. And indeed, in addition to the quote that that you just read, there is these fantastic ways of talking about this this community of Gardea in particular as the last shtetl of the world, sort of the last... Um, isolated Jewish yeah. population. And and were never isolated, shettel, of And course. to use the word
0: shtetl in this context And the choice to well. use the word shtetl.
1: Yeah. Um, and it, this narrative gets recycled by Lloyd Cabot Briggs, who we referred to either, who talks about these Jews as human isolates. Mm. Um, so uh, these are horrific descriptions, but they also tell us something profound about the ways in which colonial law haunt um, the mid 20th century and, um, continue to inform the way people understand and fail to understand, uh, different Jewish and Middle Eastern communities. And many of these communities were essentially blamed for these, um, practices. So when I said earlier on, you quoted from the book where I say indigeneity is, um, made not found, this idea that, that social scientists found a polygamous community Mm -hmm. is entirely erroneous because this community remained polygamous for a clear set of historical reasons, Um, not because they were sort of innately polygamous um, relative to other groups, but because within certain communities this is banned,
0: within other communities it isn't. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Um, And speaking of findings, I want to talk a little bit about the archives and the sources um, for all of this fantastic work. And you sort of, you begin with a mystery of the book that somehow, for some reason, I have neglected to bring up until this point, um, which is the retroactive register of the Gardian Jewish community in an attempt to solve this question of citizenship and the, quote, repatriation of the Mzavi Jews and all of the details that lie with that. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that source, Um, and without spoiling it too much, this (laughs) notion of archival dark matter Mm -hmm. that you bring up as well.
1: Yes, so this is another wrinkle in time that (laughs) runs through the book, which is not only do I begin and end with the story of departure, but in a prologue, and epilogue, I also begin and end with a story of documentation. Um, it might seem like a story of falsification of papers, but really what I think it is, is the story of how so many archival documents pertaining to this community's history are themselves have such a thick filter, a thick and, and cloudy filter. So to be more specific, what, what I talk about is how in December of 1961 at the at the very bloody near end of the Algerian War of Independence, um, there is a assistant district commissioner in Gardeia who is assigned with the responsibility to create retroactively a civil register for the Jews of the Mazab. Now, so we could say that he's asked to forge a document, hmm. but it's the reality is a bit more complicated. He's asked to write a document that never existed. Why didn't it exist? It didn't exist because under local civil status law in the south of Algeria, it was to the rabbinical authorities that the responsibility of maintaining civil records fell. So the state did not oversee the registration of Jews in the south, which they oversaw quite um, rigorously in the north ever since the passage of the Kremu Decree. So there is no list that the state owns that testifies to who is born a Jew in the Misab. The rabbis have responsibly maintained records, but have not always deposited these with state um, uh, repositories. And so the state doesn't feel they own responsible, thorough, complete, and trustworthy information. So this assistant district commissioner is asked to create a civil register. And he, in turn, asks for the assistance of, um, of a notable in the community, named Chaim Partouche, to help him in this task. And they begin interviewing members of the community, consulting rabbinical registries that date to 1898, conducting um, conversations, as he describes, in the dark of night, so as not to raise suspicion. So why all this secrecy, why this sort of cloak and dagger mystery around um, a civil registry? And the question is that, the, the answer is that the lack of a civil registry in a sense, is the is the evidence, although it's actually the missing evidence. It's the evidence of the fact that the Jewish community in this region were not citizens, had not been treated as citizens for 80 years. And it is also this missing information, which now is created or forged, you know, or invented, this missing information is also the key to figuring out who is allowed to leave because these Jews, if they are going to be declared French citizens, need to be proven to have been born in the southern territories and indeed to have been born Jewish. So a register is created. They This pair assembles a list of over 2,400 names, and this becomes a crucial template that allows Jews to be so-called repatriated to France. Now, you would think the story ends there. And this is where perhaps I don't want to give away too much. But what I follow through to the epilogue of this book is that the the administrator I mentioned, who is charged with this task of making a list, of proving who wasn't a citizen in order to allow them to acquire citizenship in the present and be French in the future, he leaves his papers behind and he goes to France with the administrator's Uh, who leave, with the Jews who leave, with a small number of Harkis who leave southern Algeria. Um, And they too think the problem is solved. They have their list. But in fact, as I argue towards the end of the book, the ghost of colonialism continues to haunt the era of decolonization. And in France, it turns out that this list isn't complete. There are problems of spelling. Some people don't know their birthdays. It is very difficult in France to generate the paperwork required to let these people um, acquire all of the rights as citizens that they need as repatriates as well as citizens, in fact. Um, And what's amazing is that to this day, families of southern Algerian extraction still need those papers, for example, to settle... Um, certain inheritance disputes. They want proof of, of who was born when, where their family came from. So that crisis around paperwork that began at that time continued on for many years, such that the same assistant um, uh, district commissioner in Gardea, who was first asked to write a list, is asked later in France, well, you don't have your paperwork. Can you get it? And he approaches the um, the municipality in Gardaia to say, I left these papers, can you give them to me? And in an interesting move, which I take to be a, a kind of assertion of um, post colonial independence, the municipality says, No chance, we're not turning over our mm-hmm. records. Other communities do, but this community decides not to. And so France is forced to deal for many, many decades, and as I say, until the present day. With this confusion around paperwork, which is a legacy of the colonial era. And I talk in the book about how this um, impacts individuals. It's not an abstraction. It has to do with how um, women obtain divorces, you know, with how rabbis obtain positions in France um, or in Israel with emigration status. And one of the things I describe in the book, you talked about the archival process. I describe my own. Um, attempts to find the records that were left behind by the French state. Um, And this artificially um, retroactively created civil registry um, is one of the things that I'm seeking. And so that drama of the pursuit of records, which takes me to a number of archives in southern Algeria, I make part
0: of the drama of the book itself. And I know that we've been talking for a while, but... (laughs) And I'm glad that you're taking a sip of water, but I do have one more question, and it's relating to archives. And again, I'm quoting you. This is on page 148. You say, many have touted, or simply failed to question, the ostensible success of the French repatriation of Algeria's archives since 1962. A large proportion of French and Anglophone scholars seem to evince a faith in the thoroughness of this endeavor, combined, no doubt, with a fear of Algeria that has been variously practical and paranoid. This has meant that many important studies on Algeria and on Algerian Jewry have been written exclusively through the French and Franco-Jewish archives. And what you do so wonderfully with this book is you explore the local archives in Gardaia and elsewhere in Algeria in in conjunction with archives in many other places. But with this, you're sort of reaching outside the confines of your book and making a larger statement about the way scholars approach North African history more broadly, or colonial history. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you can comment a little bit about sure. that. One of the surprises of this book for
1: me was that given the relatively small size of this community, how diffuse was the paperwork pertaining to their history? Uh, it took me to French military archives, to archives of the colonial state, to, um, as you say, municipal um Archive in southern Algeria, to missionary archives in Gardaia and in Rome, to archives of Jewish philanthropies in London, in in um, Paris, in Jerusalem, in New York, um, to the Zionist archives, to the archives of you know the personal papers of the anthropologist I've mentioned a few times already, Lloyd Cabot Briggs. So this is this is an incredibly interesting, I think, that you can take a community that many have accused of being isolated an apparition, marginal, you know, even the Jews of Algeria's north spoke about the Jews of Algeria's south. They talked about what they said, quote, a thick wall separating these communities. That depending on how you choose to reconstruct this history, their archival traces are everywhere. And I think this fact, is as much a result of perspective, in a sense, that as a fact, that my own interest in this book, as in all of my scholarship, is in trying to situate the history of Jewish cultures within uh, local, regional, imperial, national, and trans-hemispheric, and sometimes global contexts. So this leads me to make certain choices in the archive. You know, I think I'll for some scholars of, of Jewish history, it's it's very exciting to go to the archive and find the folder that is called, I don't know, the Jewish community, <laughs> you know, in, in whatever language or, or whatever parlance or, you know, Jewish matters or, mm-hmm. or some such thing. I'm excited by that folder too, but I'm driven to look in many kinds of unexpected places or at least unexpected as would canonically be defined by my field for traces of the Jewish past, mm. not only in folders that are about general topics like the discovery of oil in the Sahara, which is the subject of one of, of the chapters of this book, or the development of transportation networks, you know, in this region. Um but also in archives that are not traditionally considered to be the keepers of Jewish history, like a municipal archive in the Algerian South or like a missionary archive in Rome. So these are choices that I make, I think because I'm intellectually predisposed to make them, but they're also choices that I make for a a set of political reasons and and intellectual reasons. And those reasons involve um, wanting to frame um, Jewish history as a strand of, um, of a very you know dense fabric of histories that interweave and that are not intracommunal histories but are profoundly um, interactive and engaged with um, with larger contexts.
0: Well thank you so much thank thank you for your time much. and for this wonderful exposition of this book, and I hope that this encourages many listeners to follow up on the numerous mysteries and threads that you've raised. So thank you very much, and until next time, take care.